new series, and I am so thrilled about it. It's called Do You. And it's something that we have uh, kind of been building for, toward, I think, for a long time. We've been talking over the summer about the lies that we have internalized through the church, and we were debunking a lot of ideas about God. In this fall series, we're moving into um, some lies that we've probably internalized about ourselves. And we're engaging in this process of self-discovery, of trying to say, who actually am I? How do I show up fully? What does it mean to do me in the context of finding God? Because I truly believe that we can only find ourselves when we are finding God. And we can only connect to God when we are being truly authentic to who we are. We have to bring all of ourselves to the table. It's something that we actually talk about a lot at Zao. You heard Sam mention at the beginning, we say every week we are Jesus-rooted, justice-centered, and radically inclusive. And when we talk about what it means to be radically inclusive, we don't just mean, yes, that person and that person and that person are welcome here. We mean all of you is welcome here. There's no part of you that we want you to check at the door. One of the reasons that's so important to me as a pastor, as a theologian, as a person trying to find God, is because I have experienced that when I go to church and when I give myself or someone else gives me the impression that only part of me is acceptable, lovable, allowed in church, I get the impression that only part of me is acceptable, lovable, or allowed by God. And so here at Zao, in the spirit of God's radical inclusion, we are trying to emulate the love of God, which says every piece of you is perfectly lovable. Full stop. So how then do we embrace all of that when we have a world who is seeking so hard for us to conform? to conform to some image that it doesn't even understand. The world has no idea who you are, but the world has given you many pictures of who you ought to be. And part of our process as spiritual beings, as spiritual community, as people seeking after God's own heart, is to shed that image, to shed that false self, and to discover who God made us to be. That requires showing up taking risks, being creative, being bold. And so we're going to spend the fall talking about that because showing up, being real, being authentic, it's not something you have, it's something that you practice. And we can't do that alone. Tia, in her testimony, mentioned that this series is inspired in part by a researcher named Brene Brown. Now, cards on the table, Brene Brown is somebody that I do not usually connect with. Um, I'm like, oh, I'm not, I'm not as much of like a self-help gung-hoer. Um, I have these weird aversions to it. And then my friend kind of like quasi-talked me into reading this book. It's called The Gifts of Imperfection, which is the kind of title that I would immediately gloss over. <laughs> and so my friend is like, well, let's just read it. Let's find out, whatever, you know. And I started reading it, and I started underlining things, and then I started calling my friend and being like, oh my gosh, and it was like really working on me. And so uh, this, this book, um, this researcher, Brene Brown, her areas of focus are, um, she started researching shame. 
She started researching shame and vulnerability and courage and all of these sort of universal experiences and needs. And so even though the, the framework is not something that would draw my eye, her work is so universal and so real and so powerful that it absolutely drew me in. And I was like, man, this really is something that we all engage if we're trying to live fully. So her work um, talks about shame. She gives a definition of shame. Shame is the Im intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. I'm going to give that definition one more time. Shame is an intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. And she talks about how shame is basically a universal human experience that those folks who don't feel shame typically are folks who have problems with empathy and connection at all. And most of us um, have, have enough empathy and connection to feel some kind of shame. And it's this, this sense of like, everybody but me is probably lovable and worthy at some level. And so if you're thinking to yourself, well, yes, I get that for other people, but me, I am the exception know that you are in that with everybody else, literally everybody else at some point or another. And so when we're talking about these risks that we want to take to be real, to show up for our lives, we have to confront the shame that tells us that if we show up as ourselves, we will be rejected. Because underlying all of that is this fear that our core self is actually the thing that is unlovable, that is unwanted that is too flawed and too imperfect to ever receive love from anyone, let alone the Most High God. If one of the elements of seeking God and being uh, a faithful person is to receive the love of God, and I think that that's like a huge <laughs> fundamental part of being a person of faith, is opening oneself to receive the love of God, that gets thwarted every day by this deep down fear that each of us has that the true self that we all carry is unworthy of that love. And so we are so terrified of that rejection, not only from ourselves and from one another, but also from God. We are so terrified that we just try to be something else, something better, something more worthy of love than the thing we think we are. So the goal is to be loved. But what a backwards way to go about love because we set ourselves up for a trap because we know we are faking it. Brene Brown says authenticity is a practice. Being real, showing up with your full self is a practice. It's not something that you have or don't have, which is both freeing because it says, okay, if I don't feel very authentic, that means that's something I can change. And also kind of terrifying, right? Because it's like, oh, well, how do I even begin to do that? How do you practice authenticity? How do you do this, do you in being real? I think it's something that we do practice pretty freely when we're little. And I, it's one of the reasons that, that adults find children so inspiring, is there's a freedom there. We, haven't, uh, we don't come out of the womb with this shame. That's something that develops over time. And so that kind of reckless um, sense of self that kids have from time to time can be so awe-inspiring and so, um, so lovable. 
in this really beautiful way. And, and if there are adults in children's lives that encourage that, it can go to really um, absurd and lovely lengths. When I was a child, um, my parents told me that I could be anything I wanted to be when I grew up. And I believed them. And so, when I was in preschool, there was a day that was like, you know, dress up as what you want to be when you grow up. So, while other families were putting together costumes for doctors and lawyers and astronauts and teachers, my parents said, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? You can be anything you want to be when you grow up. And I said, I would like to be a mama panda bear. <laughs> and so they bought me a panda bear costume and sent me to school. <laughs> and there are pictures of me, little baby Jonah, in a panda costume. Um, I don't have pictures of this, but presumably in a classroom full of doctors and teachers and lawyers and firefighters, <laughs> right? I believed that I could be anything that I wanted to be, and I had no shame about that at the time. And what I wanted was a gaggle of baby pandas. <laughs> and so that's, that's that freedom, right? That, that practice that I had as a child of, of honesty about my desires and honesty about my self-image, the practice my parents had of, of sort of yes-anding, right? Saying like, yes, I see that, that has value, it's going to be weird, great. But there are times when we lose that. And we often lose it as we grow up. Now, we look around and we think, this is, this is true about so many things, right? We did a series on adulting several months ago, and, and I talked about how we all have this sense of looking around and being like, well, that person knows how to adult, and that person's an adult, but I am this like horrible mess. We have that sense about authenticity too, right? oh, well, that person's just so real, right? But I'm a faker. I'll tell you right now, that's something that people often think about me, that I'm very authentic. And I do try very hard to be authentic, to be real. But it's a struggle and a practice. And, and I think that that's, um, that's something that we, we would do well to be honest about. Gender is something that, as a trans person, I have had some particular barriers to being authentic, right? There are a lot of pressures from the world for me to be different than I am, especially in, this, in the experience of my gender. And with gender bending, I think about my gender so hard, you guys. <laughs> I think about it all the time, and how I'm going to be seen, and how I'm going to be read. And lots of people see me being queer, being trans, being gender bendy, and they're like, oh my gosh, Jonah is just so themselves and so real. And that's true, and that is always the goal. But it is so difficult to disentangle what other people think, right? So when I was way back in the day, before I had come out, when I was dating cis straight farm boys from central Illinois, <laughs> they had some images about how my gender should be. And so I got all of this positive reinforcement when I would wear dresses or makeup, which I liked, because femming is really fun. If you haven't tried it, I highly recommend trying to fem at some point, because it can be really fun. It's more fun for some of us than others. 
But something about it always felt fake and weird. And I just kept getting this reinforcement that I should look like other people. I was supposed to be a girl, and there was one definition that I was given about what that was. And I tried really, really hard, and it always felt like garbage, at least a little. Now, fast forward a number of years, I'm out, I'm trans, I'm awesome, I'm like getting it together. And I, date, I start dating this girl, and she tells me, oh, I love how MOC you are. And I was like, mm-hmm, yeah, no, totally. What is MOC? <laughs> she introduced me to the term masculine of center. And I felt so good. I was like, yeah, girl, I am masculine, and you like that about me. And I finally felt seen and also not seen. Because as a genderqueer weirdo, I am masculine and I am feminine, and I don't know where center is, but I am, I am all over the place on my gender. And so I found myself, even in this queer and trans space, even in this relationship that was finally affirming some part of me that hadn't been seen, I found myself conforming to her projected image of my masculinity. And it felt like a betrayal anytime I would femme it up. And so I felt this pressure to always present in a masculine way. There are times, even now, years after that, that I won't wear something that I want to wear, or I won't present in a certain way, because I'm afraid that people won't take me seriously as a genderqueer person. So when I, when I insist that people honor me by using my correct pronouns, they, them, and their, I worry that I undermine my ability to be seen if I wear makeup or if I wear a dress. And that sucks. Right? This journey for authenticity is this thing that's a jumbled mix of, am I good enough? Is there something good about my gender? Does my gender have value? And also all of the ways that the world wants us to conform. And so this passage that we have today, do not conform to the ways of the world, many of us have heard that passage used in a number of ways, but I just want to acknowledge that there are plenty of different ways that the world pressures us to conform. And those pressures are just anything outside of the person who God created you to be. And the transformation that we seek is not to, to give the middle finger to the world, but it's to transform from somebody who is always trying to please the world around us into the person who God created us to be, which is unique and weird. For me, is gender-bendy and fluid. And that is a hard thing to do when everyone around you at some level or another wants you to conform to something, anything, so that they can make sense of you. We project then this false image of ourselves. When I was in central Illinois, I projected an overly feminized version of myself. When I was in Chicago in the queer scene, I was projecting an overly masculine image of myself. Either way, I was projecting some false image of myself saying, this, surely this you will love. Because I know you couldn't actually love my weirdo genderqueer self. But maybe you could love this thing that I'm trying to be. And so we do that whether it's with gender or something else. We say, I will be lovable if I am only just X, Y, Z thing. And so we, we try so hard to be that thing, whatever it is. But then we set ourselves up for this trap. We say, you will only love me if I am X, Y, Z kind of way. I will pretend to be X, Y, Z kind of way. You will love me, yes. 
And then I will interpret that to mean that you actually need me to be X, Y, or Z thing, which I know that I am not because I am faking it. And so that love for me isn't real. Or worse, I try so hard to be X, Y, Z thing. I still don't receive love. And I have convinced myself that it's because I failed to convince you that I am X, Y, Z thing. But no matter what we're doing, we're projecting this image of self that conforms, and we're saying, love that, because surely you couldn't love me. Have y'all ever heard of something called imposter syndrome? Imposter syndrome is a phrase to encapsulate, again, a pretty universal experience of feeling like we're not good enough and we're always going to be found out. There is someone just around the corner waiting to point out how unworthy we are, unqualified we are, and to expose us for the fakers that we are. We go through the world thinking, I'm not good enough to be here, and someone is going to find out. I'm faking it, and someday everyone will know. And there is an element here to recognize, which is you are better than you think, you are more talented than you think you are, you have better qualities than you think you do. And also, I think something that doesn't get acknowledged much is like, one of the reasons that you feel like an imposter is because you probably are faking something. But the trick is not to become that thing you're faking, it's to become yourself and stop faking to be someone else. So, I have imposter syndrome about just about everything. One of the things that I feel that in is about being a pastor. I want to be a pastor. I am a pastor. But even in the way that I say that, right, like I have this projected thing, like someday I'm going to be a real pastor. I'm going to be the right pastor. I'm going to be the kind of pastor that really pastors. <laughs> I have this false image in my brain. I don't know if y'all have ever seen pastors portrayed on TV. <laughs> They're totally like me. <laughs> um, no, they're usually straight cis men. They're usually very calm and collected. They're usually very reserved, especially in the way that they dress. They just sort of dispense wisdom to people at key plot points of television shows. They don't cause trouble. They know how to, how to quote the most obscure passages of the Bible. And they always get everybody's biblical references and jokes. Um, they, they also always know the exact right thing to say, which is somehow a dismissive platitude about how God has a plan, which they always believe in. Without any doubt, their faith is always, pro uh, always projected as this like unwavering, unshakable thing that, that experience and reason cannot interrupt. That they're always just very calmly going, yes, my child. <laughs> but God has a plan for you. There are always people who um, have these uh, really on-point spiritual practices. They spend X number of hours a day in prayer and reading scripture and all of these kinds of things, right? That's the cultural image that I've been given as a pastor. I also know lots of pastors, and none of them are like that, actually. But the pastors that I know and admire are really highly competent people. They tend to be really organized people. They tend to be people who write their sermons, you know, even up to two weeks in advance and have these like really elaborate PowerPoint presentations. Again, guess what I am not? 
right? So like I have this idea of what a, what a real pastor is. Now, um, I am not somebody who's going to write my sermons two weeks in advance. I have tried to do that, actually. And that's that, that same thing of conforming to the pressures of the world, even the pressure that the world has on me about what it means to be a real pastor. I have tried so hard, and what happens is those sermons either fall flat, fall apart, or need to be rewritten when I normally write my sermons, which is the morning of the day that I give them. Some of you know that I, I come here early in the morning um, and, and help set up for like a few minutes and then I bounce and I go and I write my sermon on Sunday mornings. Now, I used to have really deep shame about that and backed into a corner, I can conjure that shame. Because I thought, that's not what a real pastor does. That's what an irresponsible person does. That's what I did in grad school and in college was me like hammering out these papers 20 minutes before class. But the reason I was doing that is because that is who I am. And who I am is not just this mess of a disorganized person. It's somebody who processes things in the back of my head, mulls and mulls and mulls, and actually doesn't feel comfortable sticking to a script, but needs to be connected to the moment. And so in all of my efforts to conform to my own false idea of what a pastor is, I have been stifling my own self, which is somebody who is connected to God in the moment, somebody who responds to the people in the room, somebody who needs to be present in order to speak the word of God. I have been failing to be a pastor because I'm trying to be a quote-unquote pastor. That is my imposter syndrome getting the best of me. That is me not being real. That is me conforming to the ways of the world and in so doing, disallowing God from transforming me into the person that God has called me to be. We all have our own version of this. Maybe it's related to your job. Maybe it's related to relationships, to be a perfect partner or parent or child but we all have some image of what we should be. And our desperate efforts to conform to that are keeping us from being transformed into the person that God called us to be. The pressure of the world to conform comes from the assumption that who you are isn't good enough. Deep down, you are so worried that you're not perfect and you're terrified of always being found out. I'm not the right kind of pastor. I should be more pastoral. I'm not, I'm not good at being a girl. I should be more feminine. I'm not trans enough. I should be more masculine. It's a trap. It's a trap, and you will always find some way to, to fail if you're trying to be something that you're not. Brene Brown talks about this as trading your authentic, uh, authenticity for approval. Trading your authenticity for approval. Approval is not love, which is the thing that we really desire, because to be loved is to be known. And if somebody approves of you being fake, then they don't really love you, and we all feel that disconnect. I'm going to read you an excerpt where she talks about the difference between fitting in and belonging. Fitting in as this thing that we're all trying to do. We're trying to skate by. We're trying to conform. She says, most of us use the terms fitting in and belonging interchangeably. 
And like many of you, I'm really good at fitting in. We know exactly how to hustle for approval and acceptance. We know what to wear, what to talk about, how to make people happy, what not to mention. We know how to chameleon our way through the day. Quick aside, not all of us do. Some of us do know how to do that and we change ourselves constantly, and some of us don't know how to do that, try and change ourselves constantly, feel like we're failing at that too, which is just an added bummer. One of the biggest surprises in this research was learning that fitting in and belonging are not the same thing. And in fact, fitting in gets in the way of belonging. Fitting in is about assessing a situation and becoming who you need to be to be accepted. Belonging, on the other hand, doesn't require us to change who we are. It requires us to be who we are. We are not really longing to fit in. What we all deeply desire is to belong, to be loved, to be seen for who we are and embraced. And we can't do that if we're conforming to a false idea of the self instead of allowing ourselves to be fully alive, to show up. You can't belong if you don't know who you are. You can't belong if you can't be real. So some of you may still be thinking, but Jonah, I suck, right? The real me, if you only knew, if you only knew, you would know that I can't actually be real. I can't be the real me until I get the real me to like a better level, right? I'll just keep doing this fake thing and I'll work on the inside me and try and make that better until I'm ready to then be the real me which is worthy of love. And again, we all feel that way at some point, at some level. Being yourself requires you to at least trust a little bit, at least pretend to trust that you are worthy of love exactly as you are right now. The world asks you to prove yourself worthy of love, but God knows you and God has proclaimed you worthy, has offered you love because God says you are worthy of love. God created humanity and said you are very good. And God continues to affirm that and believe that about you, specifically you, every day. You are very good. You are worthy of love. The world asks us to be perfect, which is already a false image. God knows that you're not perfect. God knows that you are definitely not the perfect of the world's definition. And God loves you. God doesn't ask you to be perfect. That's that conforming nonsense. There's a poem that I return to often. It's in a book written by Desmond Tutu and his daughter, Mfo. Um, and you may have heard me read from this before, and if not, I guarantee you can hear me read from it again if you stick around long enough. But there, this, this book is called Made for Goodness. And it is about how human beings are fundamentally good, made by God to be good. And there's a chapter in here that says, stop being good, which is a funny thing when it's like, you're made to be good, stop being good. But the idea is stop being good, stop trying so hard to be good. You don't need to, you are good, you can rest in that. And at the end of this chapter, uh, they write uh, a poem, a, a kind of psalm 
from the perspective of God toward us, to remind us of God's love and acceptance for us. And I'm going to read a section. It says, Don't struggle and strive so, my child. There is no race to complete, no point to prove, no obstacle course to conquer for you to win my love. I have already given it to you. I loved you before creation drew its first breath. I dreamed you as I molded Adam from the mud. I saw you wet from the womb, and I loved you then. Do do you not think, uh, I'm sorry, do you think I don't know the demands of your life? I see you striving for perfection, craving my acceptance. I see you bending yourself out of shape to conform to the image that you have of me. Do you imagine that I did not know who you were when I made you, when I knit you together in your mother's womb? Do you think I planted a fig tree and expected roses to bloom? No, child, I sowed what I wanted to reap. Our God is a God who knows us, who loves us. Our God does have plans for us, but those plans are nothing like the plans that the world has. Those plans are for our uniqueness, and they, unlike the rest of this, are based in that assumption of our core worthiness and our core value. Now, in all of this, our goal actually can be to change. But our goals to change must come from that same assumption, that we are worthy of love exactly as we are. It's not to change into something you're not. That's conforming to the world. It's actually to change to be something that you are. In this scripture, we're called to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, to discern from God what is good. And so I go back to that passage in Genesis where God is creating humanity and says, you are very good. Part of the transformation of our mind is rejecting this false narrative of the world that we must be perfect, that we must conform, and to see with new vision that God has already made us very good, and to be transformed not away from our flaws, but into the truest sense of ourselves. Our God is not a static God. We've talked about this before, about God's transformation, God's own trans-identity, a God who changes and transitions. There's a word that God gives for God's self that has been translated, I am what I am. I am what I am. When Moses goes to God and says, who should I say sent me? God says, tell them I am what I am. Our God is a God of being. But there's another way to translate that phrase. It is, I am what I am becoming. It's this continuous tense. It's this weird grammatical uh, puzzle that points toward a picture of a God who isn't saying, I am what I always have been, but a God who says, I am, as a process. I am what I am becoming. I am that I am some more. And that is the God in whose image we are made. Not a static picture of what is right and good and perfect, but this process, this creative process of discovery, of risk, of taking chances, of becoming more oneself. God always creates, always transforms. And so yes, we are called to change, but not away from ourselves, toward ourselves, 
toward God who sustains all of us. There's, a, there's a, an old philosopher by the name of Soren Kierkegaard who once wrote in his journals a prayer. He said, and now God, with your help, I will become myself. We need God's help to be real. We need God's help to show up, to see our inherent value the way that God sees, to take risks, to be honest with with ourselves and the world about what that is, to throw away the expectations and the imposter syndrome and all of that fakery, and to be ourselves, trusting that that is worthy of love, trusting that we will be best able to receive that love when we're real about who we are. So when you pray for God to change you, Pray for God to change you into who you are. It is when we stray from that towards the ways of the world that we betray God and ourselves. There's a word, repentance. In Greek, it's metanoia, and it means to turn back. Now, a lot of people will talk about how that's turning back towards God, and I believe that's true. But to turn back towards God is also to turn back towards the truest sense of ourselves. How many of us have felt like, for one reason or another, we have strayed from ourselves to the pressures of the world, to the false image we've created, to the expectations that we have around us? We've strayed from who God called us to be. So repentance is not just about this laundry list of sins. It's about turning back to the source, to God who created you, and to see yourself the way God sees you to see yourself as very good. You are awesome. God made you that way. And you are shortchanging yourself and God when you try to be something else. You can actually already know how to do this, how to be yourself. God has given you everything that you need within yourself, but it is scary, and that is why we are called to do it together. But God will lead us. And as we reflect on God as a loving God, as we immerse ourselves in practices of communal worship and communion and scripture and prayer, as we draw back towards God, we can let God transform us to be drawn back to who we were always called to be. This transformation takes place through the God that sees you, calls you by name, knows your flaws, and loves you perfectly. It's about letting go of the ways of the world, allowing God to renew your mind and to finally be real. God made you to be you. So we pray with God, not that we would disappear or change or fit in, but that we would finally truly show up and emerge, that we would be transformed into the self that God designed for us, the most you that you could possibly be, the realest, truest, most unique and beautiful version of you. This is about practice and intention. And that's why we're giving six weeks to it. Because then the question becomes, how? How do I do this? I want to reiterate, you already have the tools you need. And if you continue to check in with yourself and with God, you and God will reveal to yourself the things that you need. And also, it's scary and hard. And that's why we're here to do it together, to practice being real, showing up, even just for a moment at a time, even just for a little bit on Sunday mornings. And that way, we can receive truly 
the love of God. Pray with me. Good and holy God, we are so afraid that we are not good enough, that your love is reserved for different people, better people, that approval is the thing that we need, that fitting in is what will make us feel belonging. God, we pray that your truth would prevail, that we are worthy of love here and now, and that if you are to transform us at all, it is to be more ourself, not less, more connected to you through honesty, authenticity, and showing up. God, I pray that you would challenge us, everyone here in this room, to take risks, especially this fall, especially as we journey together as a church community, to be real. In your name we pray. Amen.